0: Achtung. Once again, it's a bite-sized pod from James and I, just to tide you over until tonight's live show. Of course, live show, that could be something filthy good. It's not. It's not. Yes, we're firing up the engines again tonight. <laughs> Having a final tot of rum, then heading into the darkness in the back of a stolen Junkers 52. What is the range on that aircraft, actually? Um, the plan is to muster it. I, let's say that, look, the were-eagles there, guys, they're flying in from, it, from from Ickley or somewhere. They can't, to, because it's Bavaria, isn't it?
1: Well, the it's the Alps, isn't it? So the the actual Schloss, which obviously isn't the real Schloss, is is in southern Austria. Yeah, six hundred miles. I mean, you know, when, when is when is it supposed to take place? Is it nineteen forty three or forty four?
0: It's meant it's uh, it's pre D Day, isn't it? It's forty four because he's got the plans for D Day in his head, isn't he? The...
1: oh yeah, okay. So it can't be it can't be higher than so southern Italy. Yeah, you're stretching it just just that alone, aren't you? Just that
0: alone. Anyway, well, we hope you enjoyed us um, nitpicking like a pair of um, uh, annoying arseholes the other night. (laughs) 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 Anyway, the plan for the live show tonight is to muster at 8.30 and hope to get into the air pretty quickly. In the meantime, we've got a couple of fascinating bits of correspondence to discuss. This is from Richie Campbell. Love the pod and have really enjoyed The Cauldron. Superbly read by Al. Thank you very much, Richie. I I really enjoyed reading it. It's also great to share a book that you love with lots of people who may not know it and all that sort of thing. Um, Hopefully, a reprint is going to happen somehow. It got me thinking about the book I've just finished, The Lions of Carentan, about the 6th Falsheim Regiment. The cauldron was intense, but lasted only a couple of weeks or so for the protagonists. The Falsheim were in combat almost constantly from 1943 onwards with a non-stop spell between D-Day and the end of the war. An astonishing feat of arms and mental fortitude and a shame they don't get the recognition due to the toxic regime they served. Amazing, nonetheless, and they were also of the greatest generation, even if they were on the losing side. Do you agree, or am I off the mark with this? Anyway, keep up the excellent pod and stay safe. All the best, Richard Campbell, ex First Scots guards. That's an interesting point.
1: Yeah, it is, isn't it?
0: But all the German units, though, I mean, you could pick any German unit that was basically from 1943, was in combat non-stop, you know, uh, uh, all all, all the time. And um, Fallsham Jäger in 1944 we're not talking the Fallsham Jaeger of 1940 or 41 are we that 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 basically you have huge because divi- there's, there's an awful lot of paratroopers aren't there in the in the in the in the luftwaffe by this point point. and not all of them have had parachute training and not all of them are the sort of cracked t- crack tough nut hard bastards that that, no, that predecessors were certainly
1: not and uh, but but I, I i became really good mates with a a guy called heinz pushman uh who actually emigrated to um auckland after the war so I, I interviewed him in in new zealand um but he was a he was a lovely god he was such a good bloke um but the reason i, I originally got to speak to him was was less for normandy more for um for italy because he was very very badly wounded in in normandy and um, got got basically shot in the head um but survived amazingly um uh, you've interviewed carl lyford um, yeah, uh, yeah. and do you remember he was tough as old boots wasn't it? and he might have been 94 but you could you could still tell that this was a guy you wouldn't cross even at his age let alone when he was 21 or something
0: yeah he'd have crept into your bed and breakfast and slit your throat if you'd said something wrong that morning
1: yeah he would he absolutely would and and, and I remember you asking him saying, saying what was the worst moment worst thing that happened to you in the war and he said having to surrender yeah and he said it with no trace of irony. I mean, it was having to, you know, he'd over been overrun in Normandy, hadn't he? And and, and yeah, having yeah. To, and being cornered and having no choice but to kind of throw the towel in for him. That still really hurt, you know. So these guys were, were were super tough. Hines wasn't, and um, um, he 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 was on the on the field telephone to his best mate down the, you know, on a different part of their front. On D-Day, when he heard his friend scream and the line went dead, you know. So then he would bought it, you know. So and 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 he understandably got very upset recounting this this story. But then I've also written a lot about a guy called Martin Purple, um, who was in uh, Norway, France, Crete. I've just been writing about him in Sicily. He was in Normandy, you know, and. and He's obviously just a really good, tough soldier. But, you know, there's lots of stuff about, you know, we were the Fuhrer's best and, you know, and we never retreated and as long as we could keep fighting, we were happy and, you know, occasionally we thought of home but we didn't allow thoughts of home to interrupt our minds too much because we were the Hitler's best troops and we had a war to fight and, you know, that's what we were all about. You know, so that, I don't know, I mean... Yeah, I mean they were re- clearly remarkable men for the most part, but um, there was a little bit. they were a little bit more Nazi than most. Yeah, yeah, and they just were. You know, they're kind of not far off SS. You know, in terms of attitude and lack of commitment, motivation, motivation,
0: politically motivated. Yeah, is, is yeah, yeah. Is, absolutely. And 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 also, so, and so much of so much of the certainly the last year of the Second World War comes down an awful lot to people's political motivation. Um, uh, yes, you know, which, which uh, one of the reasons, if you want to call the allies slow, it's because they're fighting people who really, 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 really don't want to surrender, like you've, like you've j- just said, they're really not, they're not interested in losing the war, or, or it's even that Nazi thing of um, destruction. Will one way or another. We'll go down. We'll go down. And if it involves the destruction of everything, well, whatever. Yeah. You know, which is which is the, a lot of that. The, the Hitlerian attitude, certainly. But, you know, the, the last six months, of the war that's Hitler's attitude completely, isn't it? It's like, yeah. all right, then um, we'll everything. Everything will fall in on us then.
1: First, first of all, as you know, we've talked a lot about um, uh, German massacres of Italian civilians in the Apennines and stuff and Montessori and all the rest of it. The people who who, the, the guy who issued the order for the Montessori massacre, for example, was, uh, was General Schlem, who was commander of the 1st Falscham Corps you know, on the Gothic line. Um, the other thing is, is, is Van der Heijter, is, is the guy who's, um, who was the commander of the, um, 6th Falsham Jaeger Regiment. And he's also seen as a kind of inverted commas sort of good, good German, you know, just an honest soldier who was doing his bit and all the rest of it. But one of the reasons is that is because he spoke English and he was posh. So after the war, he kind of wrote down stuff, and everyone thought, oh, well, you know, he's learned, sort of, you know, he's sort of one of us because he can speak English and he's sort of educated and all the rest of it. But again, you've still got to sort of slightly question his motivations, haven't you?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and you think you think after the uh, if if the result had gone the other way, whether any posh English soldiers would have been offered that kind of treatment? Yeah, um, quite. Uh, anyway, right. Um, now Richard Trainer got in touch via the Patreon, um, uh, and. God bless you all, the independent company. What was the role of the black market and its influence, good and bad? I know that as a democracy, the Brits still had to go through alternative channels to source certain items. This cascades up from tactical through operational to strategic, I reckon. Oh, he's just trying to get me to say it, isn't he? He is. He's just trying to get you to say it.
1: <laughs> um,
0: well, I don't really, see, I don't I really say see it. What if I say Does it count? If I, if I say it, does it count? If I say it, operational level... You see, Does I it count? well, I mean, certainly uh, after D-Day, you do have this enormous um, uh, uh, black economy being run um, uh, by the allies and certainly by the, the American quartermaster general is um, right up to his neck in it, living in the Georges V Hotel in Paris, sleeping in the finest silk sheets, blah, blah, blah. And the, I think that you, you certainly on the allied side, you get a kind of resignation to the, the idea that this is going to happen. And um, the, so what you're going to what you're going to do. Don't you? you, Yeah,
1: I mean, in in Italy, the black market was absolutely rampant and made a lot of people's lives very, very miserable. So I I cannot see a single good thing for that uh, that's come out of that at all. And um, lots of um, American, Italian gangsters came over who were already sort of left... America earlier, before the war, now absolutely kind of filled their boots, not least Vito Genovese, who was number two to lucky Luciano when Luciano was first banged up um, and was still running his, his, his sort of gangster operations from the other side. And... um Uh, And people like Vito Genovese got very, very rich very, very quickly by kind of totally monopolising the black market and just made people's lives absolutely miserable. I mean, you know, there's this incredible statistic from southern Italy in in the first half of 1944, where it was reckoned that 46% of all available women from the age of 16 to 50 had VD. Yeah. And that is because of the black market and because of because the allies with a sort of slight kind of level of vindictiveness set the rate of the lira to um, uh, at the wrong level. And so there was, uh, you know, it just just they had nothing. I mean, you know, basically, a postman was living off a dollar a month equivalent. And, and it just obviously wasn't enough. And so what do you do? There's no food because the whole infrastructure is collapse because there's no trains no electricity there's no there's no means of getting flour to the mills and all the rest of it so what do you do you have to forage uh or you have to kind of prostitute yourself to get tins of stuff from american troops and british troops
0: yeah but but then you also get that thing of um in uh in germany in 45 after the end of the war there's the british soldiers saying i don't need to rape anyone um when i can get what i want because i've got corned beef and cigarettes on me yeah that you've, that, you know, that when people talk about how did the different armies behave differently in post-war Germany, yeah. that the British and the Americans did they, like, like like this. There is there is this account. I think it's in Alan Allport's book, um, Demobbed, where he, um where he talks about this yeah. fraternization and there's a British soldier going, well, I don't have to rape anybody. What I, you know, I, I I can just I could just give them stuff and they do what I want. And yeah. and yeah. that entire um I mean it's all pretty bleak, all that, but um.
1: Gosh. Yeah, but I can't, I can't see how, how there's any good influence of the black market, is there? I can't, I'm not the right no, one.
0: No, but... no, 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 nor can I. I mean, the thing is, I remember um, d- during the uh, after the Iraq War, I remember... Um, uh one thing that one thing that when the british were running um uh, uh Basra, one thing they they said they were doing was leaving large amounts of, sort of copper wire around to be stolen so that people could then buy um sell it on and create like get a black get an economy going by creating a black market and you think you are <laughs> i remember reading this thing and some soldier saying this you think some general going you are nowhere near as clever as you think you are mate <laughs> that is that is a lousy fucking idea. And lo and behold, there we are. Yeah. No, <laughs> anyway, um, that's all we have time for, ladies and gents. Um, uh, well, join us tonight at 8.30. We'll tweet out the link later. See you then. Cheerio.